Chapter 6 The Blind Man and Joseph of Arimathea Boldness Two extraordinary men lived in the city of Jerusalem when Christ was on earth. One of them has come down through history nameless. We do not know who he was. The name of the other is given. One was not only a beggar, but he was blind from birth. The other was one of the rich men of Jerusalem. Yet in the Gospel of John, more space is given to this blind beggar than to any other character. Maybe the reason so much has been recorded of this man is that he took his stand for Jesus Christ. In the eighth chapter of John, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John chapter 8 verse 12. Now consider the story of the blind man who was healed. Scripture As long as I, Jesus, am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. Then he went and washed, and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Then they said unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. John chapter 9, verses 5-11 through 11. Jesus had told them that he was the light of the world, and if anyone would follow him, he would not walk in darkness, but would have the light of life. After making a statement like that, Jesus often provided evidence of the truth of what he said by performing some miracle. If he had said he was the light of the world, he would show them in what way he was the light of the world. If he had said he was the life of the world, he would prove it by reviving and raising the dead, just as he did after telling them that he was the resurrection and the life, and then went to the graveyard of Bethany and called Lazarus forth. When Lazarus heard the voice of his friend cry with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, he immediately came forth. John chapter 11, verse 43. The Son of God does not ask people to believe him without a reason for doing so. We need to keep this in mind. You might as well ask a man to see without light or eyes as to believe without testimony. Jesus gave them good reason for believing in him, and he proved his messiahship and authority. He not only told them that he had the power, but he showed them that he had it. These two men, the blind man and Joseph of Arimathea, were both at Jerusalem, one held as high a position and the other as low a position as any in the city. One was at the top of the social ladder and the other at the bottom, yet they both made a good confession. One was as acceptable to Jesus as the other. The Blind Man The man mentioned in this chapter was born blind, and we find the Lord's disciples asking him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. 
John chapter 9 verses 2 through 3 and verses 6 through 7. The blind man went his way and washed, and his eyesight was restored. Observe what that man did. He did just what Christ told him to do. The Savior's command to him was to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and he went and washed and came back seeing. John chapter 9 verse 7. He was blessed in the very act of obedience. God does not generally repeat himself. Of all the blind men who were healed while Christ was on earth, no two were healed in exactly the same way. Jesus met blind Bartimaeus near the gates of Jericho and called him and said, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And the blind man said unto him, Master, that I might receive my sight. Mark chapter 10, verse 51. See what he did. He did not send Bartimaeus off to Jerusalem twenty miles away to the pool of Siloam to wash. He did not spit on the ground and make clay to anoint his eyes, but with a word he worked the cure, saying, Go, thy faith has saved thee. Mark chapter 10, verse 52. Suppose Bartimaeus had gone from Jericho and had met the other blind beggar at the gate of the city of Jerusalem and asked him how he regained his sight. Suppose they began to compare notes one telling his experience and the other telling his. Imagine the first saying, I do not believe that you have your sight, because you did not get it in the same way that I got mine. Would the different ways the Lord Jesus healed them make their cases less true? Yet some people talk that way now. Because God does not deal with some people exactly as he does with others, people think that God is not dealing with them at all. God seldom repeats himself. No two people were ever converted exactly alike, as far as my experience goes. Each one must have an experience of his own. Let the Lord give sight in his own way. Thousands of people fail to meet Christ because they are looking for the same experience of some dear friend or relative. They should not judge their conversion by the experiences of others. They have heard someone tell how he was converted twenty years ago, and they expect to be converted in the same way. People should never count on having an experience precisely the same as someone else whom they have heard about or read about. They must go to the Lord Himself and do what He tells them to do. If He says, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, then they must go. If He says, Come, and promises to give sight, then they must come and let Him do His own work in His own way, just as this blind man did. Anointing a man's eyes with clay was a strange way to give him sight, but it was the Lord's way, and the man's sight was given to him. We might think filling a man's eyes with clay was enough to make a man blind. True, he was now doubly blind, for if he had been able to see before, the clay would have deprived him of his sight. But the Lord wanted to show the people that they were not only spiritually blind by nature, but they had also allowed themselves to be blinded by the clay of this world, which had been spread over their eyes. God's ways are not our ways. If He is going to work, we must let Him act as He pleases. Shall we dictate to the Almighty? Shall the clay say to Him that fashions it, What doth thou make? Thy work has no form. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 9 O man, who art thou to reply against God? Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Let God work in His own way, and when the Holy Spirit comes, let Him mark out a way for Himself. 
We must be willing to submit and do what the Lord tells us to do without any questioning whatever. Scripture Then he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. John chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Now, if he had been like many people today, I am afraid he would have remained silent. He might have said, Well, now I have my sight, but I will just keep quiet about it. It is not necessary for me to confess it. Why should I say anything? There is much opposition to this man Jesus Christ. Many bitter things are said in Jerusalem against him. He has many enemies. I think there will be trouble if I talk about him, so I will say nothing. Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. The blind man not only got his eyes opened, but thank God he got his mouth opened too. Surely, the next thing after we get our eyes opened is for us to open our lips and begin to testify for him. The people asked the healed man, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. John chapter 9, verses 10-11 through 11. He told a straightforward story about what the Lord had done for him. That is all. That is what a witness ought to do. Tell what he knows, not what he does not know. He did not try to make a long speech. It is not the most flippant and fluent witness who has the most influence with a jury. This man's testimony is what I call experience. One of the greatest hindrances to the progress of the gospel today is that the narration of the experience of the church is not encouraged. Many men and women come into the fold of Christ Jesus, but we never hear anything of their experiences or of the Lord's dealings with them. If we could, it would be a great help to others. It would stimulate faith and encourage the feebler of the flock. The Apostle Paul's experience has been recorded three times. I have no doubt that he told it everywhere he went. How God had met him, how God had opened his eyes and his heart, and how God had blessed him. Experience has its place, but the great mistake that is made now is in the other extreme. In some places and at some periods there has been too much significance put on it. Testimonies have become all experience and the pendulum has swung too far the other way. But appropriately, I think it is not only right but exceedingly useful to describe our experience. The blind man bore testimony to what the Lord had done for him. Scripture And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the clay and had opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon my eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not of God, because he does not keep the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that has opened thine eyes? John chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. What an opportunity he had for evading the questions. He could have said, Why, I have never seen him. 
When he met me, I was blind. I could not see him. When I came back, I could not find him, and I have not formed any opinion yet. He might have put them off in that way, but he said, He is a prophet. John chapter 9, verse 17. He gave them his opinion. He was a man of backbone. He had moral courage. He stood right up among the enemies of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees, and told them what he thought of him. He is a prophet. If you can get young Christians to talk not about themselves but about Christ, their testimony will have power. Many converts talk altogether about their own experience. They say, I, 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 I. But this blind man got away from the master and said, He is a prophet. He believed, and he told them what he believed. Scripture But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we know not, or who has opened his eyes we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any one did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. John chapter 9, verses 18-23 through 23. I have always had great disrespect for those parents. They had a noble son, and their lack of moral courage right then to confess what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for their son makes them unworthy of him. They said, We do not know how he was healed, which looks as if they did not believe their own son. He is of age, ask him, they said. It is sorrowfully true today that we have hundreds and thousands of people who are professing disciples of Jesus Christ, but when the time comes for them to take their stand and give a clear testimony for Him, they testify against Him. You can always tell those who are really converted to God. The new man always takes his stand for God, but the old man takes his stand against Him. These parents had an opportunity to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and to do great things for Him, but they neglected their golden opportunity. If they had just stood up with their honorable son and said, This is our son, we have tried all the physicians and used all the means in our power, but were unable to help him. But now out of gratitude we confess that he received his sight from the prophet of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. They might have led many to believe in him. Instead of that, they said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we know not. Do you know why they did not want to tell how he got his sight? Simply because it would cost them too much. They represent those Christians who do not want to serve Christ if it is going to cost them anything. They do not want to give up society, position, or worldly pleasures. They do not want to be separate from the world. This keeps hundreds and thousands from becoming true Christians. To be put out of the synagogue in those days was a serious thing. It does not mean so much now. If someone is put out of one church now, another may receive him. But when a man was put out of the synagogue at that time, there was no other to take him in. It was like a state church. 
it was the only one they had. If he were cast out of that, he was cast out of society, position, and everything else. Even his business suffered. The Jews called again the man that had been blind and said unto him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. John chapter 9, verse 24. It looks as if they were trying to prejudice him against Christ, but he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. John chapter 9, verse 25. No infidels or philosophers there could persuade him differently. There were not enough people in Jerusalem to make him believe that his eyes were not opened. Did he not know that for more than twenty years he had been feeling his way around Jerusalem, that he had been led by children and friends, and that during all those years he had not seen the sun in its glory or any of the beauties of nature? Didn't he know that he had been feeling his way through life until that very day? Do we not know that we have been born of God and that the eyes of our souls have been opened? Do we not know that old things have passed away, all things have become new, and eternal light has dawned upon our souls? Do we not know that the chains that once bound us have snapped apart, the darkness is gone, and the light has come? Don't we have liberty where we once had bondage? Don't we know it? If so, then let us not hold our peace. Let us testify for the Son of God and say, as the blind man did in Jerusalem, One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. I have a new power. I have a new light. I have a new love. I have a new nature. I have something that reaches out toward God. By the eye of faith I can see heaven beyond. I can see Christ standing at the right hand of God. By and by, when my journey is over, I am going to hear that voice saying, Come up here, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 11, verse 12, and I shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Scripture Then said they to him again, What did he do to thee? How did he open thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye have heard, what more would ye hear? Do ye also desire to be his disciples? John chapter 9, verses 26-27. This was a most extraordinary man. Here was a young convert in Jerusalem, not a day old, trying to make converts of these Pharisees, men who had been fighting Christ for nearly three years. He asked them if they also wanted to become his disciples. He was ready to tell his experience to all who were willing to listen. If he had covered it up at first and had not told his experience at once, he would not have had the privilege of testifying in that way, nor would he have been a winner of souls. This man was going to be a soul winner. I venture to say that he became one of the best workers in Jerusalem. I have no doubt he stood well to the front on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and when the wounded were around him. He went to work and told how the Lord had blessed him and how he would bless them. He was a worker, not an idler, and he continued to speak. It is a very sad thing that so many of God's children are mute, yet it is true. Parents would think it was a great calamity to have their children born mute. They would mourn over it and weep, and they might rightly be sad, but did you ever think of the many speechless children God has? The churches are full of them. They never speak for Christ. 
They can talk about politics, sports, and science. They can speak well enough and fast enough about the entertainment of the day, but they have no voice for the Son of God. Dear friend, if He is your Savior, confess Him. Every follower of Jesus should bear testimony for Him. We have many opportunities in society and in business to speak a word for Jesus Christ. Many opportunities occur daily where every Christian might be instant in season and out of season in pleading for Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 As we do this, we receive blessing for ourselves and become a means of blessing to others. This man wanted to make converts of those Pharisees who had recently been ready with their hands full of stones, ready to put the Son of God to death, and even now had murder in their hearts. Scripture Then they reviled him and said, Be thou his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke unto Moses, As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. John chapter 9, verses 28-29 the once blind man might have said, There is a good deal of opposition, and I will say no more. I will keep quiet and walk off and leave them. Thank God he stood right up with the courage of a Paul. He answered and said unto them, Indeed, this is a marvelous thing that ye do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if any one should fear God and do his will, him he will hear. John chapter 9, verses 30 through 31. Now I call that logic. If he had been through a theological seminary, he could not have given a better answer. It is sound doctrine and a good sermon for those who were opposed to the work of Christ. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. John chapter 9, verse 33. This is very strong proof of the man's conviction as to who the Lord Jesus was. It is as though he said, I am a man who was born blind, and he can give me sight. He a sinner? Why, it's unreasonable. If Jesus Christ were only a man, how could he give that man sight? Let philosophers, skeptics, and infidels answer the question. He did not have to wear glasses either. He received good sight, not short sight or weak sight, but sight as good as any man in Jerusalem and perhaps a little better. They could all look at him and see for themselves. His testimony was beyond dispute. After his splendid confession of the divinity and power of Christ, they answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. John chapter 9, verse 34. They could not meet his argument, so they cast him out. That is how it is now. If we give a clear testimony for Christ, the world will cast us out. It is a good thing to give our testimony so clearly for Christ that the world dislikes it. It is a good thing, too, when such a testimony for Christ causes the world to cast us out. What happened when they cast him out? Jesus heard. That is the next thing. No sooner did they cast him out than Jesus heard of it. No one was ever cast out by the world for the sake of Jesus Christ without him hearing of it. Indeed, he will be the first one to hear of it. Scripture Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and finding him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? 
And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. John chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. That was a good place to leave him, at the feet of Jesus. We will meet him again in the kingdom of God. His testimony has been told through the ages for two thousand years. It has been talked about wherever the word of God has been known. That man did a wonderful day's work for the Son of God. There will certainly be many in eternity who will thank God for the blind man's confession of Christ. By showing his gratitude in publicly confessing Christ, he has left a record that has stirred the church of God ever since. He is one of the characters that always stirs people up and imparts new life and fire and new boldness and courage when one reads about him. This is what we need today as much as ever, to stand up for the Son of God. Let the Pharisees rage against us. Let the world go on mocking and sneering and scoffing. We will stand up courageously for the Son of God. If they cast us out, they will cast us right into Christ. He will take us to His own loving arms. It is a blessed thing to live so godly in Christ Jesus that the world will not want you, that they will cast you out. Joseph of Arimathea I do not think Joseph of Arimathea came out as a follower of Jesus as nobly as this blind beggar did, but he did come out, and we will thank God for that. We read in John that for fear of the Jews he was kept back from confessing openly. Scripture After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 38. Listen to the four accounts of Joseph of Arimathea given in the four Gospels. Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60. When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also had been a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 46. And now, when the evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a noble senator, who also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 53. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a senator, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented in the council nor in their deeds. He was of Arimathea, a city of Judea, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone where no one had ever been placed. 
John chapter 19 verses 38 through 42 After these things Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave he came therefore and took the body of Jesus then Nicodemus came also who at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 100 pounds and they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the manner of the Jews to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore they laid Jesus there because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was near. There is very little mentioned by all four of the evangelists. If Matthew and Mark refer to an event, it is often omitted by Luke and John. If it occurs in Luke or John, it may not be found in Matthew and Mark. John's gospel is made up of that which is absent from the others in most instances, as in the case of the blind man alluded to in John chapter 9 verses 1 through 12. However, all four record what Joseph of Arimathea did for Christ. All of Jesus' disciples had forsaken him. One had sold him, and another had denied him. He was left in gloom and darkness when Joseph of Arimathea came out and confessed him. It was the death of Jesus Christ that brought out Joseph of Arimathea. Probably he was one of the people who stood at the cross when the centurion struck his breast and cried out, Truly this man was the Son of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. And he was doubtless convinced at the same time. Joseph was a disciple before, because we read that on the night of the trial he did not give his consent to the death of Christ. Imagine the surprise in the council chamber that night when Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, stood up and said, I will never give my consent to his death. There were seventy councilmen, but we have good reason to believe that two of them, like Caleb and Joshua of old, had the courage to stand up for Jesus Christ. These two men were Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Neither of them gave their consent to the death of Christ, but I am afraid that Joseph did not then profess to be a disciple, for we do not find a word said about his being one until after the crucifixion. I am afraid there are many Josephs today, men of position who are secret disciples. Such people would probably say today, I do not need to take my stand on Christ's side. What more do I need? I have everything. We read that Joseph was a rich and honorable councilman, a just and good man who held a high position in the government of the nation. He was a benevolent and devout man, too. What more could he need? God wants something more than Joseph's good life and high position. A man might be all that Joseph was and yet be without Christ. A crisis came in his history, though. If Joseph was to take his stand, this was the time for him to do it. I consider this one of the grandest, noblest acts that any man ever did, to take his stand for Christ when there seemed nothing, humanly speaking, that Christ could give him. Joseph had no hope concerning the resurrection. It seems that none of our Lord's disciples understood that he was going to rise again. Even Peter, James, and John, as well as the rest, scarcely believed he had risen when he appeared to them. They had anticipated that he would set up his kingdom, but he had no scepter in his hand, 
and as far as they could determine he had no kingdom in view. In fact, he was dead on the cross with nails through his hands and feet. There he hung until his spirit took its flight. That which had made him so grand, so glorious, and so noble had now left the body. Joseph might have said, It will be no use taking a stand for him now. If I step forward and confess him, I will probably lose my influence and my position in society and in the council. I had better remain where I am. There was no earthly reward for him. There was nothing, humanly speaking, that could have induced him to proclaim his faith in Jesus. Yet we are told by Mark that he went boldly into Pilate's judgment hall and begged for the body of Jesus. I consider this one of the grandest and noblest acts that anyone ever did. In that darkness and gloom, Jesus' disciples had all forsaken him. Judas had sold him for thirty pieces of silver. The chief apostle Peter had denied him with a curse and swore that he never knew him. The chief priests had found him guilty of blasphemy, and the council had condemned him to death. When there was a hiss going up to heaven over all Jerusalem, Joseph went right against the current, against the influence of all his friends, and begged for the body of Jesus. Blessed act! Doubtless he upbraided himself for not having been bolder in his defense of Christ when he was tried and before he was condemned to be crucified. The scripture says that Joseph of Arimathea was an honorable man, an honorable counselor, and a rich man, yet we only have the record of that one thing, the one act of begging for the body of Jesus. I tell you, though, that what he did for the Son of God out of pure love for him will live forever. That one act rises above everything else that Joseph of Arimathea ever did. He might have given large sums of money to different institutions. He might have been generous to the poor. He might have been kind to the needy in various ways. But that one act for Jesus Christ on that memorable dark afternoon was one of the noblest acts that anyone ever did. He must have been a man of great influence, or Pilate would not have given him the body. Now let's look at Nicodemus, another secret disciple. Nicodemus and Joseph both went to the cross. Joseph was there first, and while he was waiting for Nicodemus to come, he looked down the hill. I can imagine his delight as he saw his friend coming with a hundred pounds of ointment. Although Jesus Christ had led such a lowly life, he was to have a kingly anointing and burial. God had touched the hearts of these two noble men, and they drew out the nails and took the body down. They washed the blood away from the wounds that had been made on his back from the scourging, and on his head from the crown of thorns. Then they took the lifeless form, washed it clean, wrapped it in fine linen, and Joseph laid him in his own sepulchre. When all was dark and gloomy, when his cause seemed to be lost and the hope of the church was buried in that new tomb, Joseph took his stand for the one despised and rejected among men. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. It was the greatest act of his life. If you want to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, if you want the power of God to be bestowed upon you for service, then you must not hesitate to take your stand boldly and strongly for the most despised of all men, the man Christ Jesus. His cause is unpopular. The ungodly sneer at his name. 
But if you want the blessings of heaven on your soul, and if you want to hear the, Well done, good and faithful slave, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, you must take your stand at once for him, whatever your position may be, or how much your friends may be against you. Decide for Jesus Christ, the crucified but risen Savior. Go outside the camp and bear his reproach. Take up your cross and follow him, and some day you will lay it down and take the crown to wear forever. I remember some meetings being held in a locality where the tide did not rise very quickly, and bitter and reproachful things were being said about our work. But one day, one of the most prominent men in the place rose and said, I want it to be known that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, and if there is any hatred to be cast on his cause, I am prepared to take my share of it. Those words went through the meeting like an electric current, and a blessing came at once to his own soul and to the souls of others. Depend upon it. There is no crown without a cross. We must take our proper position here as Joseph did. It cost him something to take up his cross. I have no doubt they put him out of the council and out of the synagogue. He lost his standing and perhaps his wealth. Like other faithful followers of Christ, he became a despised and unpopular man. The blind man could not have done what Joseph did. Some people can do what others cannot. God will hold us responsible for our own influence. Let each of us do what we can. Even though the conduct of our Lord's professed followers was anything but helpful to those who, like Joseph, had only a little courage to take a stand on the Lord's side, he was not deterred from taking his stand. Whatever it costs us, let us be true Christians and take a firm stand. It is like the dust in the balance in comparison to what God has in store for us. We can afford to suffer with Him for a little while if we are going to reign with Him forever. We can afford to take up the cross and follow Him and be despised and rejected by the world since we have such a bright prospect in view. If the glories of heaven are real, it will be to His praise and to our advantage to share in His rejection now. May the Lord keep us from hesitating, and may we not be found wanting when weighed in the balances. See Daniel chapter 5, verse 27. May God help every reader to do all that the poor blind beggar did and all that Joseph did. Let us confess him at all times and in all places. Let us show our friends that we are totally and completely on his side. Everyone has a circle that he can influence and God will hold us responsible for the influence we possess. Joseph of Arimathea and the blind man had circles in which their influence was powerful. I can influence people that others cannot reach. They, in turn, can reach a group that I could not touch. It is only for a little while that we can confess him and work for him. It is only for a few months or years, and then the eternal ages will roll on, and great will be our reward in the crowning day that is coming. We will then hear the Master say to us, Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. God grant that it may be so.